Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have a very interesting episode to share with you. I just had a conversation with a very bright, intelligent young man. His name is Alex O'Connor. Alex is the host of the Cosmic Skeptic podcast and has an amazing YouTube channel of the same name. And uh, Alex is very passionate about uh, ending animal suffering. He is a vegan and we also talk about uh, his sort of journey into atheism. And those are two things, being a vegan and an atheist are things that I am not, but I had a great time talking to Alex to hear his perspective. He's a very smart guy. He's very, he's well-read for his age. And uh, we had a good conversation about these topics. Um, so whether you are or are not a vegan or an atheist, I think this will be interesting to hear both sides here or uh, multiple viewpoints on these topics. And I hope you will enjoy. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Alex O'Connor. Hey, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the show. No, oh, thanks for the invitation. I can never pass up an opportunity to talk about, talk about animals. Cool, man. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, caught my attention about you is, uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, you have an amazing podcast, a lot of great content out there. And one thing that, you know, you are clearly very passionate about is being a vegan and being an atheist. Right. And those are things that, I, I'm neither one of those things, but I love to talk to someone like yourself who has those ideas and, uh, you know, we could sort of go through them, find out how you came to this conclusion and, and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it, I, when you say I'm, I'm passionate about atheism, it's difficult to be passionate about something that is a, is a non-position. Um, I'm passionate about contradicting claims that I see to be false, especially when they find their way and meddle their way into, uh, political or, or moral codes that people are expected to live by. Um, I certainly have a passion at debunking that to the highest extent that I can. But when it comes to the philosophical question of God's existence, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to me and I, I enjoy debating it and I study it for a degree, but it's not something that I would care about in the same sense as I'm passionate about reducing the suffering of animals, for instance. It's kind of a, it's a different type of a passion there. One's a passion of interest and one's a passion of justice. I understand. Okay, well, let's start with the uh, the passion of justice, the the animals. I mean, you're a you're a young man. You know, you've been been uh, on this earth for long enough to probably be grow up eating meat. I imagine, like most of us, and at some point made a switch into becoming a vegan. Did you start as a vegan, or did you transition from you know like typical omnivore to vegetarian to vegan? Well, I know a lot of people do that, and that's partly indicative of the fact that. A lot of people these days, I'd say the majority of people who are going vegan are doing so for environmental reasons. Um, what they'll begin by doing is realizing that they should be reducing their meat intake to try and help uh, help the planet and help the animals. Maybe that might come as an afterthought. 
Uh, and that might lead to flexitarianism towards vegetarianism and then maybe veganism if they get there eventually. For me, it was a purely ethical case. It was a philosophical case, a detached rationalistic approach to ethics as applied to non-human animals. And I became convinced that it just was not justifiable to exploit these animals for sense pleasure. Uh, and so I never had a period of intermission. I went immediately from eating meat every single day of my life to never touching the stuff and any of the products that come from animals as well. Uh, so I didn't have that kind of transition. And I think that a lot of ethical vegans don't either, um, or at least they don't in their head. And if they do have a transitional period of vegetarianism, that's not, uh, that's not really seen as a kind of, look, I've taken this, this great step and this is my life now. It's like, my goal is to eventually be a vegan and I'm only doing this as a stepping stone. But for me, I just didn't need the stepping stone and couldn't have done the stepping stone because I would have felt like I was just cheating myself and my ethical principles if I was uh, accepting them enough to do something, but not accepting them enough to do everything that I should be. So there must've been some sort of realization, some sort of change in mindset that led to that, you know, quick change. Cause like you said, most, most people have those stepping stones. You did not have those stepping stones. What was that moment for you? Well, what happens, uh, generally speaking, well, what had been happening is like, I've compared it before to walking through a bookshop and seeing a, a book about charity and why we should be giving more money to charity. You probably look at that book and think like, yeah, you know, that looks great. Uh, but I probably don't need to read it. I mean, I get it. You know, we should be giving more to charity. You probably wouldn't feel like you actually need to pick it up. Right. And it was the same thing with books about animal rights. I'd see books on the shelf saying, here's our philosophy around, you know, should we be eating animals? And, and, and you think, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, animals, you know, they feel pain, yada, yada, probably shouldn't be eating them. I, I don't need to read that book, right? But then eventually I just did. And the book that I read was Animal Liberation by Peter Singer, who was the forerunner of the animal rights movement. He wrote that book in 1975 when practically nobody else um, was talking about it. And it just changed everything, right? The, the way he puts the arguments, uh, makes you realize what it is that you're doing and that by eating meat, you're not refusing to partake in a philosophy of veganism, but you're making an active choice yourself to uh, cause directly unnecessary suffering to animals. And the mental gymnastics that we have to, uh, that we have to perform in order to justify that behavior is exactly the same as the, sa as the mental processes that justify things like racism and sexism. And they can apply, be applied just as easily. Um, that realization made me, made me, uh, I, I mean, it terrifies you at first, uh, but then it leads to just an absolute obligation, uh, to go vegan. With your transition to vegan in that book that hit you, was it the moment that you put the book down the next day you're no longer eating meat? Well, that's the interesting it... thing that there's always a, there's always a period, right? And, and so, uh, immediately my mind, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a long time. It's very difficult to avoid thinking about animal ethics when you do what I do, which is philosophizing on the internet. Someone's going to ask you about it, but you'll notice that when uh, a lot of my friends and colleagues now and myself in the past and even the bigger skeptical names, when they're asked about it, they kind of um and ah, you know, Richard Dawkins always says, well, you know, I try to be vegetarian when I'm cooking at home, but I'm not going to you know, put people uh, through the misery of me being a vegetarian when I'm out in public, that, that kind of thing. It's like not really getting to the core of the issue, right? Uh, and so I thought about it for a long time. But then when this happened and it was suddenly, uh, it became evident that it was actually an obligation, uh, a normative obligation that I had to do something about. It was, it was kind of a, a question of when. Um, and I just went through this period, maybe lasting, I don't know, maybe a few months where I would kind of 
I'd still be eating meat. Like I'd, I'd maybe cook some bacon. And as I kind of pressed the spatula down on the bacon and heard it frying, I just, I just felt this, this horror, this disgust, this dread just come over me. Um, and I'd walk down the street and I, I absolutely adore dogs. And I used to love seeing dogs passing me on the street. And I'm always the type of person to stop and pet them, but I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to look them in the eye. You know, I, it was, I, I feared that if I spent too long looking into the eyes of a dog, I'd end up just bursting into tears or something because I recognized what I was doing. Um, and so I thought, what better to do, given the fact that I have a platform on YouTube, than to make a video, which is what I did. I made a video called a Meat Eater's Case for Veganism. And I said, listen, somebody please talk me out of this. Because if you can't, then I'm going to have to go vegan. And nobody did, of course. And so uh, one day, I was going into town to, to pick up a, a bacon sandwich. Um, I saw a cat crossed the road. I looked at the cat. It kind of jumped when it, when I passed it on the bus. Um, I looked at this cat and it jumped away in fear. And I just, I, I just saw this animal in, in, in fear and pain. And I just thought that's enough. Uh, and I went into town and I had a vegan breakfast instead. And then I said, you know what, I may as well have a vegan lunch as well and see how that goes. And I haven't had an animal product ever since. Physically, have you felt a, uh, a difference in your energy levels or anything like that? Uh, I mean, it varies. Uh, a lot of people will tell you that they feel amazing when they go vegan. And, and a lot of people will tell you they go, they feel amazing when they stop being vegan. And, you know, I don't doubt that they do, but any kind of feelings that you have are not due to the nature of your diet in terms of whether or not it contains animals, but the nature of your diet in terms of what nutrients you're getting. So for me, uh, I've never been particularly good, uh, at healthy eating. So when I went vegan, I was pretty unhealthy at first and I probably started feeling a little bit more tired. Um, but then I learned about the nutrients I needed. I, I, I learned, you know, where to get sufficient iron, where to get uh, B12 and all this kind of stuff. And I started uh, doing that and I just felt back to normal. You know, I don't feel like some super human plant-based, crazy, clean, fresh, re rejuvenated man. I just, I feel the same as I did before. Um, the interesting thing is that even if I felt worse, uh, even if I did feel lethargic and I did feel um, not as, not as strong or whatever it may be, um, I'd still be vegan. That wouldn't change anything for me. Uh, so how lucky we are that that doesn't tend to happen. Um, we have to understand that it's, it's been shown and is demonstrable that every single nutrient that you could, that you need can be achieved on a plant-based diet. So what that means is if we accept the fact that the way that your food affects your function is purely in the nutrients it's providing, that's un uncontroversially true then if those nutrients can be getting, get, got, gotten from a, from a plant-based diet, then it just must be the case that you can get the same kind of nutritional benefits and feel the same. Um, so, you know, you may feel better, you may feel worse. It just depends on how you do it. For me, it was just uh, essentially the, the same. It was a moral change, not a dietary change. So from, from a moral perspective, what was the, you know, you, you, you know, obviously there's, there's animals killing animals every day in the world. It's, it's a right. very common occurrence. What, what is it about humans and the way that we kill animals that, that makes it unethical or something that we should not uh, continue to practice in your mind? Well, this is an interesting point. Uh, people often bring up the point that there are animals killing other animals and they use that to try and justify us killing animals too. Um, first thing to note is like, if we accept that logic, then surely you should only be eating carnivores. Why is it that the people who say animals eat other animals, that's why I'm going to do it, eat almost exclusively herbivores. Why are they eating, why are they eating cows who are, who are munching on grass, right? If their justification is that the animals they're eating are supposedly going around and killing other people and other animals. It's, it's simply not the case. 
Second thing is that animals do a lot of things that we wouldn't wish to replicate. Um, and just because something occurs in nature doesn't mean it should be happening. Animals also rape each other, uh, but we wouldn't use that to justify either raping each other as human beings or going and raping animals. Uh, and in fact, uh, sexually abusing an animal is far less damaging to it in terms of its pain and its psychology than what we're doing in factory farms. And yet we've decided that one is absolutely grotesque and inexcusable and one is common practice enough to, to be sustaining our entire diet. Um, the thing that makes humans special is uh, moral agency, right? And moral agency isn't the same thing as moral worth. In the same way that a, a human child once, once born, like, like, you know, maybe a month old or something, if it does something that we would consider immoral if an adult did, like if, if it hits somebody, right? We wouldn't hold it morally culpable because we recognize that it doesn't know any better. It's the same thing with non-human animals. If they go around killing each other, we know that they don't have moral agency, right? That's why we don't hold the baby accountable because we say that the baby doesn't have moral agency. But the baby not having moral agency doesn't mean it doesn't have moral worth, right? These are separable phenomena. So you can say that it doesn't have the agency to judge it for its moral decisions, but it does have the worth to treat it as though uh, it's, its life uh, has value, right? And it's the same thing with animals. They might not have the moral agency that we can judge them for killing each other, but they still have the moral value that we wouldn't want to uh, slaughter them and exploit them. I mean, after all, the same thing could be said for a pet dog, right? If I said animals are killing each other in the wild, why can't I kill and eat your dog? It, it would seem like a ridiculous question, right? We are animals, right? We, we tend to separate ourselves with this large chasm between us and other members of the, of, of the animal kingdom. But I could just as easily say that animals are doing all sorts of things to each other. As Gary Yarofsky once said on, on an interview on, on television, the, the host said, you know, lions dine on the gazelle and we don't judge them for doing it. And, and, and Gary says, yes, they also, when they greet each other, sniff each other's ass. And when I came into this TV studio, I didn't see you getting down on your knees and doing that to me. Like, don't take what you want from nature to justify your immoralities when you're not going to accept it wholesale. Well, I, I mean, I... Where I see the, that argument sort of coming into play about animals eating other animals is over the ethical question of whether or not it's, you know, is it actually, is it morally bad to consume other animals? And naturally, you know, there are many things that animals do that we would not replicate or not something that is, you know, something a human would ever be, uh, practice or behave uh, in that kind of manner. But is there, you know, like, is the lion morally wrong for, you know, eating a gazelle? You mentioned the sort of, uh, the ability to know if you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, obviously a lion, a tiger, you know, genetically has been, you know, on this course of eating meat mm -hmm. for mil millions of years. It's very, you know, very common part of nature. Is that something that, uh, you know, it's like, I guess that's, that's the, uh, you know, fine point to try and dive into there is, is, is there any situation where eating an animal in your mind is, is an ethical or, or reasonable thing to do? Of course, but then uh, with, with philosophical thought experiments, you can justify almost any practice. I mean, you can imagine a situation in which rape would be permissible, you know, if it were going to save enough lives or whatever it may be. Um, of course, that's the case. What we're after is a minimization of unnecessary suffering. So with a lion, the suffering is necessary in two ways. Firstly, because it, it genuinely doesn't have the moral capacity to act any differently. But secondly, even if it did, uh, lions are obligate carnivores, right? They have to eat meat to survive. And therefore, we could justify them doing so as a necessary part of their survival. It's simply not the case with us. We're omnivores. We get to make the choice. We can eat meat if we want to, but we can also uh, refuse to do so if we recognize that we don't want to. And we can also uh, use our moral agency, which is the other part of the equation, 
to say that because we're moral creatures, we should not want to. And because we should not want to, and we have the capability not to if we don't want to, that should lead us to be living a herbivorous lifestyle. Interesting. You know, I, I think that's a great point. And uh, I agree with you 100% that it's, it's the... Uh, you know, it's the type of suffering that, that is important. Like in my mind, the way that we do factory farming uh, is is unethical. Not not the you know act of an animal killing another animal, but more of just the waste that it occurs. You know that that it produces. Uh, so much of that meat is unconsumed. Uh, you know the the methods are are you know degrading. How, however you want to perceive it, uh, as opposed to other arguments I've heard where some people you know they'll they'll hunt their own food you know, go out, kill like one elk or something and eat that elk for the course of an entire year until they go find another one. What's your thoughts on, on a lifestyle like that one where there's less waste, uh, much more, you know, practical use of the entire, you know, act of killing one animal? Well, you have to understand that I, I think it's a waste regardless of whether or not the meat is ultimately eaten. Um, if somebody offers me some meat that's going to go in the bin and they say it's going to be wasted if you don't have it, I say it's a waste if it goes down my throat as well. It just wasn't worth it in the first place. Um, if you're taking the life of an animal unnecessarily, I think that's an immorality. And there may be better ways or worse ways of doing it, but there are better ways, more humane ways and less humane ways of abducting people and murdering people. But we wouldn't be campaigning for a more humane method of murder or abduction. We, we'd be wanting to eliminate it entirely if we can. It's the same thing for... It's the same thing for the exploitation of animals. I would say, for instance, that I hear a lot that this kind of line of thought. People say, of course, I'm against factory farming. You know, everybody's against factory farming. Uh, but what about this situation? What about hunting? And I say, well, I think, is that really true? I mean, I hear it so often. It's the first thing people say. They say, well, I'm against factory farming myself. And I think, are you really? Because if you were, what would that entail? It would entail that every single time you ever have an animal product, you make sure that that isn't where it's come from. Now, I, maybe you do that, but the vast majority of people that I've spoken to, in the same breath as saying that they try to avoid factory farm, they're not going to be able to name a single brand or a single store which consistently sells meat that doesn't come from a factory farm. It's like they're just saying that because they recognize that if they admit that actually, no, they never check, uh, they would immediately be exposing themselves to themselves as committing an immorality. So I, I don't know for yourself, if you're somebody who thinks factory farm is wrong, uh, factory farming is wrong, but there are certain ways that animals could be killed, morally speaking. Um, is that something you, you live by? Is, is that something you actively uh, take part in, if you see what I'm saying? Uh, so I'll, I'll be, you know, just for full transparency, I'm a, I'm completely hypocritical in this situation. I, I, I recognize the evils and the wrongdoing of factory farming, but I still regularly consume meat regardless of the, uh, the brand and location and whereabouts. But I am, uh, you know, aspiring to achieve a lifestyle that's much lower impact uh, and one that would, uh, you know, where I could hunt my own meat and and live off that for you know, the course of, you know, as long as it lasts, be much mm. lower impact in the, in terms of, you know, just the waste that goes into getting the nutrients that I need in my body. Yeah. But this is the interesting thing. It's like, what's, what's stopping you? I mean, everybody has the capability, um, to, to act upon their compulsions. It's like, how would you deal with somebody who was, uh, you know, committing an immorality and, and, and calling yourself a, a hypocrite seems to imply that you recognize it's an immorality, which means that like compare it to another immorality. If you were talking to a racist or a sexist or something, you said, listen, you really shouldn't be doing this. You really shouldn't be lynching people. You really shouldn't be racially abusing people and, and, and vandalizing their property. And they said, 
yeah, I know. I mean, you're right. I guess I'm just, I guess I'm just a hypocrite. You know, I know that it's the wrong thing to do, but and I'm striving one day to, to be in a situation where I don't go and, and graffiti uh, racial slurs on the homes of black people. But uh, I guess I'll get there one day. It's like, how would you respond to that? I mean, you'd probably be quite bemused. You'd, you'd be like, but I, I don't understand. It's like, this is such an easy thing to change, even if you even if you don't recognize that it's immoral, right? The fact that you're, you're saying that this is immoral and that you don't want to be doing it, and it's so easy not to be doing it, it's like, what's going on here? And that's, that's not necessarily a criticism so much as it is an interesting point about our human psychology. How can we have an issue, unlike any other issue it seems, where people can be fully on board that something is totally immoral and should be wiped from the face of the planet, and yet be contributing, it, uh, contributing to it, not only kind of indirectly or out of necessity, but explicitly every single day of their life for almost every single meal that they ever eat and not for some great grand purpose of, of health or of, of war or of national pride or but just because it tastes nice. It's like, what is going on here? And the moment that you take a step out, right? Because of course, these same criticisms apply to me about a year ago, right? I was doing the same thing. And so I, 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 for me, it's just a sense of embarrassment now when I think back to that time in my life. And but it's like, it's not like I don't get it. It's not like I'm saying, you know, how could you do it? It's like, yeah, I've been there too. But like, once you take that step out, it's very, very difficult to look back in and, and see it as anything other than moral insanity, right? As soon as you actually take yourself away from the situation, you just start to notice that this is absolutely everywhere. It, it just, it, it's just kind of mind boggling and mind blowing at the same time. Um, but that's one of the most interesting questions that I like to ask people on a psychological level is like, what is stopping you? You know, it's not a difficult thing to do. Well, uh, you know, I, and where I imagine a lot of people, you know, sort of come down to is, is there's something very different about eating meat than being a racist. One is completely unnecessary. The other one is, is could be critical to your survival. It you could be, I mean? but it's not right now. Right. It's like, well, maybe in, you know, maybe if you live in, you know, the UK or the United States and a populous city, someplace with vegan restaurants, you know, all that kind of stuff. But for the, entire world to go vegan is that a reasonable uh is that a reasonable approach is that a reasonable well there, there are many ways to approach that question the, the first is to say that if there are places in the world where people can't go vegan the reason for that would be out of necessity and as you know we've already kind of agreed that um necessary suffering can be justified second thing to say is that in that situation when we are in a situation where we can go vegan in a country such as the uk or the united states then we have even more of an obligation to do so so that we can be global trendsetters as we have been on issues like slavery it's the same kind of thing it's like not everywhere abolish that at the same time but somewhere needs to do it first they need to set the example uh, the second thing to say is that one of the reasons why veganism is unattainable um, around the world is because of the different economic conditions of people around the world. But like we are growing enough crops to feed the world's population three times over. And in fact, we're growing those crops in some of the poorest areas of the world. And we're then taking those crops from those areas, bringing them over to developed countries and feeding them to livestock and then eating the livestock, right? All of this is kind of tied up with, uh, with the meat industry and the agricultural industry, like asking questions about whether we'd need like a, a globalized, government or whether we'd need a, a global movement uh, to end animal cruelty, whether it can happen gradually, whether it can It's like they're useful and interesting questions. But what I do know is that uh, most of the people who will be listening to this podcast are in a position where they can feasibly go vegan. And most of the people who listen to this podcast, if they're not vegan, the, the reason that they're not is not is not really because they're thinking about uh, global socio-political uh, issues it's because they think it tastes nice right and so that's what i want to tackle my goal isn't necessarily 
to get people to stop eating meat, right? That, that's, that's one thing, but that's not, that's not really the goal at hand. The goal for me is to try and convince people that eating meat when it's not necessary is immoral, right? So like you could be somebody who lives in a situation where it's necessary for you to eat meat and you recognize still that if you weren't in that situation, it would be immoral, right? That's my job done. I'm just trying to get people to, to realize as I realized that these animals are members of our moral community. And just as there are situations where we might justify killing uh, human beings, <clears throat> a lot of the time in, in just wars, people might accept the concept of collateral damage or something like that. You can at least hypothesize situations in which, yeah, and maybe not everybody can avoid killing other human beings, um, like for instance, in self-defense or whatever it may be. Uh, but as a general rule, we say that we should try to avoid doing so. And in the same way, yeah, sure, there are situations where it would be necessary to eat an animal. But as a general rule, we should try and avoid that too. Uh, I mean, I, I think like the point you make that people are, you know, who could potentially be vegan or, you know, eating meat just for the taste. I think there's, you know, obviously an argument there that uh, they're eating it for the nutrients as well. I, I'm not sure that the, you know, science is entirely settled. I hear so many debates on it, whether or not you can fully sustain off of a vegan diet for a long period of time and still, uh, still get the same nutrients that you need from, or the same nutrients that you could receive uh, pretty simply just from, you know, eating meat. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what studies you've been reading, but I know that the studies that are put out by the largest dietetic associations on planet Earth, such as the American Dietetic Association and the British Dietetic Association, uh, show quite comprehensively that you can survive on a vegan diet at all stages of life, including pregnancy. Um, it, it's like people who say that the science are, is unsettled. It, it, it's kind of like how the science on smoking was unsettled um, in in the 20th century, because all of the studies that were being done to fund uh, all of the funding that was being done for studies uh, to investigate the effects of smoking was being done by tobacco and smoking companies. It's the same kind of thing happening today with meat. If you look at the actual data um, separated from the ideological biases of the people funding the studies, you'll find that it's just as healthy. And there are, in fact, many health benefits as well. Um, it isn't my area of expertise, but it doesn't need to be because it doesn't take a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. It's fairly easy to but, see this but, stuff. And, Yes, I, I guess, you know, it's kind of like trying to predict the weather, though, and trying to understand all the factors that could possibly go into yeah. it, similar to like, what kind of diet you do, you know, like, I think one of the like dieting in general is one of the hottest debated topics on the internet, you see it all the time. And I think part of the reason there's so much discourse on it is because some people react differently to different diets. Um, some people mm. can go vegetarian, other people literally cannot, like it does not work for their body. Some people can eat entirely meat. And can I eat vegetables. Uh, people are very, uh, it's a wide spectrum of what people are able to survive and sustain off of. Um, so as much as like scientifically, we may be able to show that a nutrient is a nutrient. And if you can substitute this nutrient for this similar nutrient, uh, you know, you could be able to sustain yourself. Is it, you know, at the same quality of life, you know, when you really dive into the, you know, the minutia of all the small variables and start to look at, you know, can you live exactly the same at the exact same cost? Mm -hmm. I think there's some, there's a lot more complexity there than just saying that, you know, a, a you know, impossible burger is the same as a regular burger or, you know, you know what I mean? You can sort of match. Sure. I, right, right. You are. Yeah. Right. You are. But I would say that if that's the case, then we should be treating it as, I mean, if it's the case that uh, as a general rule, it's perfectly fine for human beings to survive on a vegan diet. Um, but for some people, they just can't get the nutrients they need. It's like, we have people who can't get the nutrients they need from any food. Like there are people who are ill. There are people who have malfunctions in their body such that these things, are, and we make exceptions for these people, right? We have, we have medicines. We have uh, ways of dealing with these situations, right? And 
if it were really the case that we lived in a society where everybody was vegan and there were some people who couldn't be vegan, I would guarantee that medical science will have done a lot more to tackle those people who seemingly can't get nutrients from plant-based sources because people actually care about it. But even if they hadn't, and even if they couldn't, then perhaps you could make an exception. You could say, well, here we go. Okay, let's, let's have uh, some animals which we euthanize in order to sustain these human beings. Like, fine. But that would be exclusive to those human beings, right? It, it, it wouldn't be the case that we could say that because there are some human beings who we should probably painlessly euthanize some animals to make sure that they can sustain health and maybe they only need to eat meat once a week or whatever it may be like who knows whatever the case is um we can't say that because such people exist uh we can therefore kind of just be okay with factory farming we can be okay with everybody else eating meat we can it's like it should be treated as the exception that it is if those exceptions truly do exist um like yes theoretically like what if the exception was you know 20 percent of the population yeah well then then we'd require a, more of a comprehensive uh, approach i imagine um but like i i genuinely uh would not believe that that's the case and and that now again like we could be wrong about this but this is why we have to rely on our philosophical principles which is that we want to minimize unnecessary suffering so if it, if it transpires that in fact there is some necessary suffering that needs to be done in order to uh sustain uh, the human species then okay it wouldn't contradict the moral philosophy that i'm putting forward to uh kill some animals in that situation what it would contradict the philosophy to do would be to kill them in the way that we're currently killing them um, and would be to try to extrapolate the exception to make it the rule. Like even if that were the situation, even if that were the case that there were people who really needed to eat meat, I guarantee that they don't need to eat as much meat as they are currently eating um, and that we don't need to be killing those animals in the way that we're currently killing them, right? It wouldn't be for profit business anymore. It wouldn't, it would be uh, treated as kind of a medical thing right? That's, that's, that would be the difference. So it wouldn't be kind of like, let's see how many animals we can fit into a cage and, and make sure they still taste nice. In fact, we yeah. wouldn't even care if they tasted nice because it's like, we're not doing this for taste anymore. We're doing this for, we're doing this, uh, for health. Like would these people really be willing to get rid of bacon and, and, and nice sirloin steaks and everything being seasoned real nice. If it was just like a kind of injection or something, if it was like we could get the nutrients and we can inject, uh, turn it into a pill or something. I feel like people, would still want to argue uh, that no, they want to keep their bacon, right? I, sure. There, there are many different arguments, right? And so when we talk about health, it's a tricky one because for, for, for uh, starters, I'm not a dietitian. Um, I just trust the dietetic authorities. Um, but as a moral case, I think the case would be summarized as saying that if it's possible for you to be a vegan, which I would almost guarantee that everybody listening to this podcast, maybe with an exception, um, possibly with an exception, uh, can do, then it is a moral obligation, right? That, that, uh, that if then can fail if the if is not satisfied. If it's like you can't actually survive on a vegan diet and you've got a way out of that conditional. But if you can, then I think you have a moral obligation to. It's not a moral virtue. It's a moral obligation. It's like a baseline of our ethical conduct. Well, I definitely agree with you that we, you know, like, like we talked about earlier, we want to limit the suffering either way. One thing mm. I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on is when it comes to, you know, if, if our technology gets to the point where we can genetically engineer the same type of meat, you know, if you could just make a ribeye, is that okay in your eyes? If, the, if there's no suffering involved, then absolutely. This is the, the thing about it, right? Like it's very, it's, it's easy to answer um, animal rights hypotheticals, which spring up in, in your mind a lot. Like I remember I always think about these things. I think, what if, what if this were the case? What about this? How would I feel about this? And 
it's why you've just got to rely on the principle, right? The principle is minimizing unnecessary suffering. So if it's like we can create meat without there being any suffering, is that a problem? It's like, well, by definition, like that's fine. Like by definition of the principle that we've established, like, yeah, no problem. Um, like it, it, you could argue that like, that would be a good thing to be investing money in, for instance, because that's going to convince people to go vegan if they can still have their sirloin steak and it doesn't cause any suffering. It's like, yeah, fine. I'd be, I'd be glad to see that crop up. But in the future, if that, if that became the norm and everybody went vegan for that reason, uh, people would be embarrassed to admit that they only ever went vegan when the steak became available and they didn't do it before when they could have been eating vegetables and animals were being tortured, right? There's, there's enough reason already to do it. But like, yeah, that would be a welcome advancement. Excellent. Yeah, just curious to see, you know, sometimes, sometimes people find moral uh, problems with, with that kind of yeah. uh, technology as well. Yeah, you do get a lot of, um, you do get a lot of vegans who kind of, I, I, it's a strange thing that happens. It's like they, they seem to have a principle that they've, that they've used to, to get to veganism, but then they don't like to apply the principle consistently. It's like, you'll try and say, but, but surely in this situation, it's okay to kill a cow. And they'll be like, no, no, it's never okay. You can't do it. And, I, and I, I'm just like, we've got to be a bit more honest about this, right? This is one of the reasons why veganism has a bad name. It's because they're seen as, um, because they're seen as kind of totalitarian. I almost said absolutist. I mean, I am an absolutist in the sense that I'm absolutely against the exploitation of animals. Um, but like that includes human animals. I, I'm against the suffering of human animals too. And there are obviously situations where, uh, where seemingly non-vegan conclusions could be, could be reached. Like you should kill the cow or you should eat that meat or whatever it may be. Like, um, we've got to accept those as the case. I'd be skeptical of anybody who says that there's never a situation in which it's okay to eat meat. Absolutely. Um, to, to segue sort of towards uh, your, your you know, atheist beliefs, one thing that I find interesting and one thing that I also notice is that I think there is a, a strong correlation of people these days who are, are trending more atheist than ever before in probably all of human history, uh, moving away from institutionalized red religion. At the same time, a lot of people are moving towards trends of, you know, uh, seeking higher morality, whether they're, you know, concerned about global warming or uh, animal suffering and veganism. And I notice that I just find it's an interesting conflict between sort of a movement away from morality and at the same time, a movement towards, you know, more compassion or morality on, on the other hand. And a lot of people are doing these, both of these things simultaneously. And I'm curious, sort of, where did you, where did your, uh, how was your upbringing? How did you, you know, find yourself sort of debunking the, you know, religious, you know, yeah, maybe well, religious for, background you had? I mean, for me, it, it's it's certainly more philosophical than moral, and the, and there's a there's an implicit assumption in what in what you're saying there. You say like this move away from morality in one sense. Um, I would ask why on earth you would consider a move away from organized religion to be an, a move away from morality. In fact, a lot of uh, my atheist friends and colleagues will see their uh, deconversion from religion as a move towards morality because they recognize that the uh, institutions they belong to and the uh, uh, and the systems that they uh, were members of were in fact immoral in their very nature so I, I think um, the, the the question uh, should be rephrased as kind of a move away from um, authoritative belief in sure. theistic power towards uh, kind of humanistic morality For myself um, well and also it, it, Atheism is a is not believing in God. Am, am I? Am well, that's I right. I was going to say. I mean, uh, just just a moment ago, you said uh, your atheistic beliefs, which is like saying um, your non-golfing practices. It's it's atheism is something you don't do. Of course, there are some people who don't 
who who actively believe there is no God, who who say that they know there isn't a God, and 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 they can argue uh, to that effect. And those people are, of course, atheists. But not all atheists believe there is no God. Right? There's a difference between believing there is no God and simply lacking a belief that there is a God. Right? Um, in the same way that there are lots of people who don't play golf. Right? And if there was somebody who didn't play golf and said that playing golf was immoral, it was an awful thing to do. Like that person would be a non-golfer, but not all non-golfers are that person. It's the same thing with atheism. Um, the vast majority of atheists, certainly reasonable atheists that I've met and interacted with, um, take the kind of lack of belief in God approach. And that's what the word literally means as well from the Greek, a meaning without and theos meaning God. Um, so for me, I used to be a Roman Catholic when I was a child. And I say that I was really rather the, the, the child of Catholic parentage, let's say, because I wasn't old enough to really understand the transubstantiation and the triomni God and everything. Um, and what happened was I just realized that I didn't have a justification for it. It wasn't like, ah, here's an atheistic argument. It was like, well, hold on, where is the grounding here? This whole castle is built on sand. In fact, it, it would be good if it was built on sand. It's built on nothing, right? The castle doesn't even exist. That's the, that's the thing that happened. It was like a realization um, that it was all smoke and mirrors. Um, now, that's not to say that I realized religion is false or God does not exist. I just realized that the belief system that I had was grounded on faulty logic. And then it becomes a case of saying, well, let's see if any of the others have something to them. And my entire career and channel has just been an investigation of different religious views and seeing if they do have any, any grit to them. And as far as I'm concerned, as far as I've found, none of them fit the bill. Um, but I'm still continually on that search. That's kind of the point of the atheistic uh, content. It's not just me sitting in a chair going, God doesn't exist and I want to tell the world about it. It's like, if God exists, it's the most important question that mankind could ever be reflecting on, like without, without question, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, for instance, that is the most important event in human history. So like, it's important to know if that happened. Um, but as I've been investigating it, I've found that I'm unconvinced that it's the case. Understandable, understandable. And uh, I apologize for making any overgeneralizations or anything. Oh, not um, at all. It, it's something, I mean, it's just something that, that is done a lot. Like uh, there, it, it doesn't bother me much if someone says that they believe atheism means that you believe there is no God or it's a belief system or something. It's like, I've got no problem with that. It just means that I'm not an atheist on your definition. You know, like I, we just got to be careful to make sure that you always kind of understand where each other are coming from, I think. Absolutely. The, in today's world, understanding the terms is, is, you know, like the prerequisite to even debating any sort of topic. No one can agree on the definitions mm. anymore either. Yeah. Uh, but it's been like that forever. I mean, there's a, a Voltaire once said, if you wish to converse with me, then first define your terms. It's mm. one of the most kind of overlooked bits of philosophy. People just want to get into the argument and the getting into each other's throat. It's like, no, let's, let's pull out a, pull out a theoretical dictionary first and see where we get with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. In, in your search for, you know, as you observe other religions and seek out some of these truths to see if it's, uh, you know, if, if there's, you know, if these events happen, have you been, like, like let, let me rewind a little bit. One thing that I've noticed is that many religions are very similar and they have a very similar almost framework with different, you know, you can say different characters or different setting or different you know, the stories are told in a different way, but with common themes. Uh, is that something you've also observed? Uh, to, to an extent. I mean, they all rely on similar, uh, what I see as, as kind of fallacious reasoning that, that it kind of crops up in all of them, but they are also vastly different in, in the specificities of their belief. Like the, 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 the predicate on which they're all built, I think is similar. 
but the branches that come off of them are, are radically different. I mean, for instance, when you're engaging with Islam or Christianity, you've got a whole different uh, set of rules. Like with, with a Christian, where the Bible um, in the book of Timothy says that women should remain silent and, and uh, subordinate to men, they can turn around and say, well, actually, a lot of scholarship says that Paul maybe didn't actually write that. It was, into, it was put in at a separate date or maybe it was there or whatever it may be like. They can do that, and, and you can't necessarily criticize them out of hand. You need to understand their position first. But if you're arguing with a Muslim about what it says in the Quran, they can't do that because they believe the Quran to be the literal word of God, whereas the, Bi uh, the Bible is not the literal word uh, of God to Christians, right? And like Christians make often a, a, a purely historical case, or they try to, for the resurrection of Jesus. They say that here is a historical event, that if we can prove it occurred, then we can extrapolate from that divinity. If a man rose from the dead as a historical fact, then we can probably assume that that was some kind of divine intervention, right? Um, but again, like Islam can't really do the same thing because they're, the basis of their faith was a man in a cave who nobody was observing, right? That's not a thing that you can really historically prove. So there are different rule books by which you have to uh, engage, with the, engage with the ideas and engage with the specific beliefs. But the basic philosophical principles of the existence of a God, the existence of eternity, the existence of eternal punishment, that kind of stuff is fairly common throughout, I think, yes. Yes, and uh, what I find interesting about that is how any institution, any system that you see in place today, you know, whether it's a government or a business or anything, they evolve and they change and they get distorted so much over time. You know, I look at the current state. I was also raised like Roman Catholic, similar to you. And you look at the current state of that institution, you know, you, you might go to the Vatican, you go to church on Sunday. You just say like, oh my God, this is like a 2000 year old, you know, this thing has just gone through the ringer. It's been changed. It's been affected. It's been edited. Uh, and now this is, is just its current form. And it's almost completely lacking whatever, you know, sort of uh, richness or authenticity almost to, you know, at least a, when I was growing up, my generation, we did not feel uh, you know, you go to church, it didn't feel necessarily like a holy or spiritual thing. It was more of just like something that you had to do similar to going to school. Um, it's almost been uh, passed down so far that it's lost its meaning. Uh, I'm curious if in your studies of, you know, other religions, if you've seen similar trends with the older, you know, like what causes someone to find meaning in a religion? And is that similar between all people? Well, yeah, I mean, I think throughout time, it's been a similar kind of uh, religious drive. I mean, there's a strong argument to be made that we have bio-psychological um, uh, kind of inbuilt intrinsic drives towards religious belief, or at least devoted worship and supernaturalism and that kind of thing. And I think that roughly it stayed the same. Uh, individuals have wanted comfort and meaning and institutions have wanted power and authority. And that, that is a common theme throughout all religious history. Um, things have changed a bit, you know, the, 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 the early days of Islam, uh, was the establishment of the caliphate and the, the kind of political leadership, um, of the caliphs. Uh, nowadays it's a bit more of a kind of dispersed theological approach, right? It's like Christianity used to be a political force that had its hand in government. And although it still, uh, does kind of have its hand in the pot, it's like, again, it's now, it's now kind of um, a lot more submissive. It's now they're saying, oh, no, 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 if we don't accept homosexuality, then society's probably going to condemn us, so we should, we should start doing that. Instead of being able to say, no, no, if you accept homosexuality, then we're not going to accept you. The, the tables kind of turn in that, that respect. Um, but the, the basic kind of 
basic drive within human beings to wish for there to be something more, to wish to escape death, all of this kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's been around um, as long as there's been thought, I, I, I could imagine. Um, the, the changing religious tides more just reflect our developments in science and philosophy rather than any kind of change in the fundamental nature of who we are and what we want to believe in. I'm curious, this is slightly different, but I find that the more that I consider it, they're, they're sort of similar. Are you familiar with, or have you sort of dove in deeply into considering like, you know, Elon Musk talks about with a simulation that we're all living in a simulation and that, you know, like what we have around us is potentially, you know, just, it's, it's a simulation created, you know, whether or not we're the baseline, you know, population or not. Yeah. The, um, the guy who first kind of famously formulated that uh, in, in a famous paper was Nick Bostrom, who's a philosopher at Oxford. I wanted to get him on the podcast, actually, on, on my podcast that I have on my YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those interesting arguments that seems totally counterintuitive, but actually makes a lot of sense when you break the argument down. Um, yeah, I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I'm certainly familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, because it's one thing that I... I can't help but to feel like uh you know the the same reasoning that goes into like you know this was all created or it's kind of like code you know you look at common uh patterns in nature and you look at all these common natural phenomenon and it's in a way similar to religion in the sense that or in a belief of you know there was a creator and there's you know this universe that we live in and there's certain rules to go along with the you know, whether it's the rules that you believe in with your religion that are the same as, you know, essentially the rules of the simulation, which come down to, you know, like what is moral and what is immoral? You know, if you murder somebody, will there be adverse consequences to that? You know, is that something that's sort of written into the code of the simulation or is that something that's purely a belief to help, you know, societies prosper? Yeah, but the difference with that is that um, if you apply kind of the design argument to the existence of God, then you're using it to extrapolate that everything was created by some super hyper intelligent being with the simulation hypothesis. It begins with a genuinely base level, uh, human society. So it's not like the sim we're not trying to prove that the simulation is, is, is causing what we're doing here. It might be that what we're living is caused by a simulation, but the simulation is ultimately just caused by human beings It's caused by some kind of, um, society of people, right? That's, that's the argument. So, so it's, it, it kind of works in the other direction. Um, but also, the simulation argument isn't going to say that in the same way that the design argument for God does. It doesn't say, look at all of the design around us. It seems to imply the code. It just says that like we have a certain complexity and we have a certain uh, ability to recreate the world around us. And surely our technology will become advanced enough one day to be able to do it comprehensively um, such that we uh, replicate a society, which itself then goes on to replicate its own society and so on and so forth. And you get this endless stream. Um, Therefore, it's not like it's not like looking around and saying, "Look at this complexity." Therefore, we're in a simulation. It's like the complexity had to exist first for the simulation to even be created. Um, whereas with God, it works the other way around. And people say, "Look at the complexity." There had to have been a designer um, in doing so. Just just utterly undermining um, the far more elegant and also more explanatory uh, uh, explanation. Explanatory explanation, if you'll excuse the tautology. Sure. sure. Um, of natural selection, which doesn't just work on a biological basis, but also on a cosmological basis. Uh, it, it's, it, it's elegant simplicity is of the sort that lots of scientists kind of look at it and think like, how on earth had nobody thought of that before? It just, it just, it's not like some you know, natural selection, although the, the science supporting it is, is groundbreaking and amazing and beautiful, the actual just thought behind it is 
it's just it, it's a fairly simple one it, it's a really simple uh, idea that you know randomness will be acted upon by natural causes to to shape complexity and, and make things fit for their environment it's like it, it's very very basic simple idea um far more simple than looking at the similar complexity and saying that ah well this must be due to some divine supernatural creator it's like you've got to kind of weigh up your options here and, and apply Occam's celebrated razor, I think. Yeah, I guess that's what it, you know, is sort of the thought experiment there is just trying to, you know, like if you look at all the common patterns in nature, is that always the, you know, is that always the simplest natural selection, you know, like way to develop? If, if you're looking at any given species, look at like the common occurrences of, certain proportions in nature or certain, you know, like Fibonacci sequence in nature and all those things. Is that simply just the low, the simplest evolutionary track? Is that the simplest natural selection? Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be the simplest. It just has to be kind of plausible. I mean, because, because there are so much diversity on planet earth alone, let alone the rest of the universe, that it would be extraordinary if there weren't such uh, repetitions and, and coincidences or whatever, even though these things often aren't coincidences, it's just evidence of things being governed by the same natural laws. Um, but you could apply the same argument for the, for the arguments for the existence of God. You could say like, what best explains the fact that in a giraffe, the left recurrent laryngeal knee, uh, nerve goes from, from the brain uh, to the larynx. But instead of just going straight there, it goes down the neck, down the massively long neck, and does this in us as well. Wraps around a vital artery, comes right back up again, and then connects to our mouth. It goes in this ridiculous detour, this dangerous ridiculous detour. Why might that happen? Could it be either because some god has some mysterious explanation of why he wanted to make this ridiculous detour, or could it be because we evolved from fish who don't have necks. And so the, the nerve actually did go from the head to the larynx. And as the neck developed gradually over time, the nerve got stretched out, right? Is it due to a process of adaption or is it due to a, a process of intelligent design? It's like one seems more, uh, more plausible than the other. And in fact, to the extent that, that could be used as arguments against intelligent design, you could say that that's not an intelligent uh, example of design. Whereas when you talk about uh, certain things being apparent in nature that seem like uh, complex it's like and you say that maybe that should be explained by a by a creator it's like i mean i mean complexity is the very thing being explained by natural selection uh so again like it's like to the to the religious argument uh that says something of of the of the type that you were just putting forward it's like you know be careful because that gun will turn on yourself and it will fire with a lot more power great insight I love hearing your, your thoughts on this because you, you have so much information here that clearly you've, uh, you know, you've done a great deal of research. I'm curious with your channel, with YouTube, with your podcast, everything, what, what do you see for 2020? We're at the fresh start of this new year here. You, we just talked about two major topics, you know, mm. atheism and veganism. Like where, where do you see uh, yourself going this year? It's a good question. Um, I tend not to, I tend not to really plan too much. Reason being that if you'd have told me, a year ago that my channel would have essentially become a vegan advocacy channel. I probably would have slapped you across the face. Um, <laughs> so it's like, you never know where things are going. Uh, at least in the short term, I, I want to spend more time getting people trying to take animal rights seriously. Once you become convinced of the animal rights case, it's very difficult to care about anything else. Um, you know, I'll be having an argument about somebody with, with somebody about, you know, whether the modal ontological argument for the existence of God makes any sense. And then I'm thinking, but in the time it takes us to do that, millions of animals will have been slaughtered, right? There's something more important at hand. So I want to spend a bit more time getting people to take that seriously, doing a lot more public events as well in, in person, like 
YouTube is amazing and I love doing it, but I don't enjoy setting up cameras. I don't enjoy editing. I don't enjoy advertising and all this kind of stuff and promotion. I just like to sit down and talk to people. That's why I like doing things like this because uh, I don't have to do any of the hard work. That's all on you. Uh, so I want to do a few more public events, um, which I've got a few coming up conferences and debates and things. Uh, but that's I've maybe try and use YouTube as a bit of a springboard into that kind of thing and maybe writing some kind of book if I find the time amongst my studies. But I'm afraid I don't know for sure. I suppose your viewers will have to find out by uh, by subscribing and 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 uh, keeping up to date with the uh, with the regular content. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, you're. I, I want everyone to go check out your stuff just because I think you know what you're doing at a young age is really awesome. I think it's a. Uh, I'm excited to see what you come up with and where the next you know where your where your progress heads towards. Uh, I guess my my last sort of just question in that realm there is sort of uh, you know what your mission to, you know, raise awareness for these things and to do these things, where does that, uh, like, where, where do you see there being like a, like a finish line or is there a finish line for you? Or is this, or is the quest for knowledge enough for you? You know, like what, what is sort of like on, on that level? What, what are your, you know, what, what are you seeking out for, for these purposes here? Mm, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say, like uh, in terms of just engaging in philosophy and having discussions and that kind of thing, I think that people just, rational creatures that we are we, we have an innate desire to just try to uncover things that are true and debate things and discuss things and try to uh, uncover philosophical ideas um that i think can be done for its own sake um i think that when it comes to issues of justice that there isn't necessarily quite a finish line it's like if you asked abolitionists in the 1700s what their finish line was they might say well we want the abolition of slavery but it's like things clearly don't end there like there's a lot more work to be done but it's good to have kind of long-term goals i mean obviously the the most obvious end-term goal of the animal rights movement is to illegalize the exploitation of animals right but like it, it, it surely wouldn't end there there'd be a lot more to do um in terms of like preventing wild animal suffering and that kind of stuff um, as well as like the black markets that would inevitably emerge, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, the, there, isn't, there isn't an end line, like ultimately, there isn't like an ultimate telos, but the short term, um, I say short term on a kind of historical scale, the, the, the sure, short term sure. goals here are, uh, you know, legal action and moral revolution. Like let's get people on the street as angry as they are now about climate change, about the injustice towards animals that we're currently seeing, then maybe I might be able to put my feet up and kind of let the activism go on to another generation. But until that happens, I, I'm afraid that I'm just not going to be able to shut up about it. Well, I appreciate your pursuit of knowledge and I appreciate all the work that you do to create content and share your information with the world. That is incredibly valuable. And, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck this year. Alex, where can you remind everybody where to find you on all the different platforms? Uh, yes. So on YouTube, I go by the name Cosmic Skeptic. Uh, so pretty much any website forward slash Cosmic Skeptic, that's skeptic with a K uh, to cater to the, to the American audience, um, which is what I tell people. I say that it's spelt with a K because it's mostly American audience. But of course, the real reason is because I just misspelt it when I first typed it in <laughs> to Google. Um, so youtube.com forward slash Cosmic Skeptic is the main one, but also Facebook, Twitter, and all of the works. Fantastic, Alex. Well, thank you again for joining me. It's a real pleasure to chat with you and to, you know, sort of pick your brain a little bit here. And it's been a, an enlightening experience. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you.
Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.